pray. Father, we are so grateful for that resurrection word that you declared, pronounced, commanded, and in that you defeated death and sin, our greatest enemies. We're grateful that you always have the last word. You are the first and the last, the Alpha Omega, the beginning and the end. You are life and hope and peace and joy. Lord, we need a miracle from you this morning. Because your word this morning that we'll look at calls us to deeper faith and trust, deeper humility and servant-heartedness, joy no matter what, gratitude no matter what. And so, Lord, we can't do that. You need to. And we pray that's exactly what you would do through your word as the Spirit works. I'm so grateful for your faithfulness. Please use the frail one who preaches. Help all of us to draw from you exactly what you would have us draw this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have absolutely been deeply, deeply helped by this series through Philippians. I, I've read Philippians lots of times. I've memorized chunks of it. I've studied it. I've preached some of the passages. But this journey through Philippians has taken me so much deeper in my understanding of the gospel and, and God himself. I'm so grateful for it. I was thinking... I've been reading and studying the Bible long enough where the, the books of the Bible and the people in the Bible have become like friends to me. But when you preach through a book of the Bible, it's like going on a road trip with a friend. Where that, there's nothing like a road trip to deepen a friendship or to end it, I guess. Uh, that happens too. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's like we go on this road trip with these books of the Bible and go far deeper than we ever had before. And these messages through... Philippians that I've been privileged to preach but also sit under the preaching of and it's so helpful to me. In this morning's passage, I feel so burdened that we get this. I always feel that way but this passage this morning is, is so at the heart of what it means to be a Christian in our daily lives that I am so concerned that we all walk out of here with a far deeper understanding of what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus, not go through the motions, be religious people, be moral people, but be people who are new creatures in Christ, transformed by the work of the gospel and the power of the Spirit in our lives. And so that's what I'm hoping for so deeply. And I hope you are here wanting that sort of transformation. I know we all come in here in so many different places with so many different burdens. And, and I've heard for a long time, I, hi, guys. I've heard for a long time. Um, I just love this church. All these old family members come back and 
rudely interrupt me by sitting back there. Um, <laughs> the Petersons are back there. Love the Petersons. Um, what was I saying before I was really interrupted? Um, yeah, I've heard for a long time and known for a long time. <laughs> Thank you, Bree. She helps me out. Um, that Philippians is a book of joy, and it is, but do you realize the depth of that joy? It's joy in chains. It's joy in suffering. It's joy in intense persecution. In a few weeks, we're going to watch the film together on a Friday night called Paul, the Apostle of Christ. And when my wife and I finished watching that movie with our kids, Don and I were just done. We, we were just so moved by that movie. It took us about 15 minutes to collect ourselves when it was over. It, it's about the end of Paul's life, and he's, he's in prison in Rome, and and the Roman believers are going through this with him. And, and when you realize that these letters we're reading were written by real people to real people, usually in brutally difficult circumstances, it takes on a whole new level of, of depth and understanding and relevance for our lives. I, I think the Christian life, among other ways, can be summarized as sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Those two things that you think, well, those don't go together, do they? Well, they do. In some ways, epitomize what the Christian life is about. And so this joy we're called to in the book of Philippians is a deep and profound joy in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the, the death and sadness and sin and darkness all around us. And so we've got to heed God's words, word this morning as we dive into it together. Would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, that's where we are. I'm so grateful for Rob Price's sermon last week because I already knew and had been working on what I was going to preach this week, and I, I just think Rob teed up my sermon this week as well as he possibly could have because if we don't get what comes before this passage right, we're not going to get the passage right, and in act, it, it can actually be something the opposite of what it's intended to be. But let's read together Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12 through verse 18. Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, 
Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, I I hope you saw the abundance of commands in this passage. Did you hear all the things we are commanded to do in this passage? We are to obey all the time. We are to work out our salvation and do it with fear and trembling. We are to do all things without complaining or disputing. We are called to hold fast to the word of life. We are called to rejoice together, even in the midst of persecution and great suffering. That's what we're called to. There are commands here we need to take very seriously. You could not have a stronger command to obey, to get after the Christian life. This is right at the heart of any apathy, any passivity in the Christian life. But we've got to make sure we frame it right in light of what Rob so helped us so well understand last week. And that is Jesus. If we dive into all of these commands and disconnect it from what precedes, we are going to get in trouble. And we don't want to get in trouble. And we have actually a major indicator that we need to back up if we're going to get this right. Look at verse 12. Therefore, oh, We better pay attention to what comes before. Therefore, so we back up. What is he he saying this all in light of? I think it's verses 9 and 10. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he's saying, in light of the fact that Jesus has accomplished everything the Father called him to, the fact that Jesus now is exalted because of his finished work, the fact that he will be worshipped by all the nations, live this way. The fact that Jesus won and will ultimately win in a definitive, undeniable way, live this way that we see in verses 12 through 18. And so exaltation's the goal. Exaltation's the motive. Jesus' exaltation and the fact that by faith in him and union from that with him, we are exalted with him as well. So the way up is down. That's a counterintuitive kingdom of Christ way of thinking. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. Unless you're the servant of all, you won't be first in my kingdom. So Jesus says, he he says, the least of these are the ones who lead in my kingdom. The servants are the ones who reign with me. So exaltation is the key, but you'll notice we need to back up again because verse 9 starts with what? Therefore, (laughs) so we need to back up again. Therefore what? Well, we back all the way up to a very similar command in verse 1 that we've just read. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, all these things have been obviously accomplished abundantly, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. It's so important to link the no grumbling or complaining in our passage with the humility we're called to in the previous one. And that humility is linked to what? The humility of Christ. We count others more significant than ourselves. How? Why? Let each of you not look out to his own interests, but also the interests of others. How can I do that? I am a profoundly self-focused, self-centered man. It comes very naturally for me to look out for my own interests. How can I do this? We're told, thankfully, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the obedience we are called to is preceded by the obedience of Christ. The humility in never grumbling or complaining and putting others first in that is represented for us and modeled for us in Jesus' servanthood. He empties himself. He serves. He humbles himself. He obeys the will of the Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we need to back all the way up and see our passage in light of the entire chapter before us. But I have more news for you. Look at how verse 1 starts in chapter 2. So, <laughs> oh, we need to back up some more. So, what's the so? I think it's verse 27. We're all the way back to Randy's passage now. Weeks ago. We were getting ready for our passage this morning as Randy, Randy preached this so well. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or an absent, sounds familiar to our passage, doesn't it? His presence is not the determining factor in whether we live this way. No one's is because God's always present. Whether I'm there or not, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That takes humility. That takes the lack of a complaining spirit. That takes servant-heartedness. And then this is very important. Don't miss this, verse 8, verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, our key word in our passage as well, and that from God. So we see fear as the problem we're combating in our effort to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now we dive back into our passage in light of all that's come before saying, okay, now these are very practical commands of how we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live in a way that depends on Jesus' representation of, for us in his humility and servant-heartedness and ultimately his death for us promised the exaltation of Christ where we are exalted with him and now we can work this out in the daily events of our very normal mundane lives. And so we are commanded many things in here but framed by all that we've just said. And the first thing we're told is to obey. Obey, be obedient. Do you realize how central obedience is to the Christian life? We so emphasize our experiences these days that we tend to define being a disciple of Jesus by our experience of Jesus from moment to moment. 
or our lack thereof. Jesus does not put the priority of discipleship on an experience of him. Oh, that's part of what's happening. But what he says is things like, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Jesus says things like, make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to do what? Obey. Everything I've commanded. Do you see following Jesus and obeying Jesus as non-negotiable related things? We need to admire Christians for lots of things, but right at the heart of what we admire and look up to Christians for is their obedience. Obedience is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. We do what our Lord says. That's the sign of a disciple who's moving toward him and growing. We obey. We obey him. And, you know, my whole life until this week, when I studied this passage, I thought Paul saying, just as you obeyed in my presence, but now even more in my absence, I always thought that was... um, Don't just obey because I'm looking over your shoulder. Obey when I'm not looking over your shoulder. And and the reason I think I thought that way is because I, as much as any kid ever, was the one in the classroom when the teacher would leave, would say, she's gone. (laughs) And I, I wouldn't do malicious things, but I would try to climb out the window, scale down the building, do a lap around the school, and be back in the classroom before she got there. <sighs> Eric, why are you sweaty? I, I, I don't know. And, and I, would, I would do these things, and, and she's gone. Now we can run the classroom. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think this is threat-based. I'm looking over your shoulder, but now I'm not, but obey anyway. I think this is a call to obey and not be afraid. So I think fear is a huge thing being combated here. All the way back to verse 28, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, what will be the counter to that? Living in fear, verse 28, being frightened by anything in your opponents. Don't be afraid. Paul was their father in the faith. They depended on him. They look up to him. He established this church in Philippi, and he's not there there now, and persecution is intensifying. And I, I think they're wondering, can we make it without our father in the faith here with us? And he's saying, look, whether I'm there or not is not the, the non-negotiable. God's always been there. And when I was there, the big important thing was that he was there working through me. So whether I'm there or not, even more now that I'm not there, depend on God, don't fear, and live this way. Obey, not just because I'm there. That's never been the most important thing. Obey. Don't depend on external things or my presence to obey. Obey. Do what God says. Obey his commands. And then he says what? What what does this obedience look like? Here's the central command of the passage. Work out, produce, create, bring about your own salvation with fear and trembling. Wow. 
That's a strong command. And if that's all we had, the Christian faith would not be any different than every other religion, which is what we do for God to earn our salvation. This can't be works-based salvation. Oh, it's a serious command. But to understand this, we need to understand that salvation in the Bible is a past, present, and future reality. It's a really big word to describe what God's doing in saving us from what? From sin, from death, from final judgment. And in the New Testament, the word salvation is a big umbrella term to describe what God has done for us in Christ that's finished to describe what he's doing right now, overcoming the power of sin in our lives, and what he will do one day to free us from the ultimate judgment of sin. So salvation's this big word. And in this passage, it's being used to describe, I think, this big umbrella term. Here's an example of a past use of salvation in the Bible. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's a gift of God. So not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's done. God did it. It's by his grace. It's not what you do. So that's a past salvation. We are saved past tense through faith. But there's also a present use here in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And here's the future use, Romans 13, 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So we are saved from the... the the sin's consequences are in our lives. We are saved. We are put into a right relationship with God. We are being saved as he frees us from the power of sin and enables us to live the lives he calls us to, and we will be saved from the coming judgment, the ultimate penalty of our sins. So here Paul is saying, work out your salvation. This is not something you accomplish for yourself. Notice it says, work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. You don't accomplish this. God does, but you work it out. We work it out together. That's what, he, what he's calling us to. I don't think this is a threat here. I think this fear and trembling, this working out, this fear and trembling as we work it out is something beloved children are being called to. That's how he starts the whole passage. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, he says, you are, you're children of God. This is not those who are outside of Christ. This is those who are believers, followers of Jesus. And he says, you're beloved, you're loved ones. To the same degree, the Father says he loves the Son, he loves you. You're the beloved ones of God and of Paul. That's what he's saying, you're beloved. That's an established fact. You are saved in that sense. Now work it out. This is the core command of the passage and a fundamental description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This work is a strong word. It's continuous, earnest, sustained effort. No passivity in the Christian life. No apathy in the Christian life. And we're to do this with fear and trembling. And again, I don't think this is fear of punishment. I think this is a kind of fear that says, God is awesome. And he can do this. So in light of that, I feel very small, but very emboldened at the same time. 
It's the fear of a child and awe of God's presence to change him, to bring this life about. Because we're adopted children of God. We're beloved children of God. I think Romans 6, 17 helps us here. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed and have been set free from sin and become slaves of righteousness. Oh, we are saved from sin and death and judgment. God does that, but now we work that out. And we work it out with confidence that God is at work and he has made us his own. Look at just the previous chapter, 116. I think this is very important to include in what we're thinking about. I, I'm sorry, uh, 16. Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's confident of that. He's he's sure that's going to happen. He will bring it to completion. And in chapter 3, beginning of verse 10, we have the same thing going on. Listen to 3.10 and following. The goal of his life is that Paul may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. He's working this out but in the midst of confidence. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Do you see where it starts? You see where it starts? We are his, so we act like that. Not so we become his, but because we are. It's like when I correct my children because they're part of our family and they live according to our ways and our rules. They don't obey so they can become part of my family. They obey because they're part of my family. It's an established fact. It's a reality. They're family, so live this way. He made us his own, so we live accordingly. We press on. He says he made us his own. I press on. He's made me his own. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to lies ahead, I press on to the upward call, the goal for the prize of the upward call in God of God in Christ Jesus. Let any of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think other and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. I think verse 16 really gets right at what we're doing here. Live up to what you've already attained. Hold true to what's already yours. There's this interesting mystery in this. It's ours, so hold on to it. God will make sure it stays yours, so make sure it stays yours. It's it's an interesting tension here. This is right at the heart of the Christian life. This is God's sovereign power and grace and our earnest effort beautifully coming together as we live out the Christian life. It's not one or the other. It's not one or the other. You would be inclined to think it is. But the Bible does not see this as some intractable problem we have to solve with all of these fancy solutions. It just says things like, work out your faith with fear and trembling for it's God who's at work within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we say, which is it? It's got to be one or the other, or one or the other is meaningless. Which is it, Paul? And he says, yes. <laughs> and he says things like, 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Well, Paul, is it your toil and struggle or is it God's power and energy? Yes is the answer again. It's not an either or. And that may be hard for us to understand, but the Bible doesn't see this as some sort of problem. It realizes that God has this awesome and unique ability to work within the realities of human experience and human hearts and with human responsibility to bring about exactly what he wants. And that's how we pray, isn't it? Lord, change my heart so I can love my wife the way you call me to. Or I never will. I know that by now. 30 years I've been at this. If he doesn't do it, it's not happening. But it's me who does it. God does that. We can't do that. We can't change a human art. We can't bring about events. God can. And he does all the time. And we come to realize this and we rest in his power and we work toward it. And his assurance that he's at work and will get us home is not an invitation to be passive or apathetic. It's actually a command to work hard. It's not either or. Work hard, resting all the while. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so what do we do? We forget what lies behind. We press on to what, what lies ahead. And we, we seek the upward call in Christ Jesus. You know, the Kavanaugh hearing and this nonsense in Virginia that's going on. Yearbooks from the 80s are a thing now. Tell me, have any of you wondered, as you've heard about yearbooks and, and um, bad or th things that are in yearbooks that could cost you a job, have any of you said... I wonder what's in my yearbook. Who's, who did that? Who, didn't oh, come on, Andy. I certainly did. Yeah, Andy and I are the only honest ones in the room, apparently. Yeah, um, I did. I thought I was an idiot in high school. What's in there? And I went back and I looked and I look what I found. I have, I have my, well, I actually have Donna's yearbook. Here it is, the triad, 1982. Here it is, people. This is crazy. You're not going to believe this. What? So I found the entry where I signed Donna's yearbook. That's why I brought this one. Now, at this time, you need to know it was springtime. We got our yearbooks early. We were signing each other's yearbooks. At this time, Donna was dating a good friend of mine. Uh, I'm not going to read most of what I write to her. But here it is, 17-year-old Eric, you ready? One of the things I say is, you've got to teach me how to play tennis sometime. Uh, but later on, near the end here, I say, um, thanks for hanging out with me at the senior outing. <laughs> and here's how I close. You're not going to believe this. She's dating my friend, remember? Don't forget. If you ever need a good husband, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Kenny Clark has been working. I did not put those up there. Who put those up there? Brandon, did you go find those? Where'd you get those? Oh, you grabbed my yearbook. What in the world? We'll get to the bottom of that later. Get rid of it. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> I did not write tough guy right there. I didn't. Who's, who got, you dirty scoundrels back there. None of this was supposed to get up there. Who stole my yearbook? Unbelievable. Come on. Unbelievable. So remember, if you ever need a good husband, dot, dot, dot. Yes. Um, but, but then I went and I looked, you know, the senior quotes. Everybody writes a senior quote. And they're so predictable back here. Um, you people from the 80s will love this. Uh, one of my friends, fly like an eagle. Fly like an eagle, right? Um, how about this one? Another one of my friends, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. <laughs> Woo, yeah. Um, my friend Mike says, and it makes me wonder. Big Zeppelin fan he was, yes. Um, this, is, this one's hilarious. This guy, was very, he was very dramatic. He was at, actually in theater. He wrote, Keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. The only problem is there was a typo, and it says, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stairs. That's a very different image than reaching for the stars. It's like, ah! right. Saw plenty of guys at parties reaching for the stairs. Yeah, that's, but, oh, I found Donna's. You want to hear Donna's? She's, not, she's next service. She has no idea I'm doing this. This is great. Here's Donna's. Your soul, will have, your, your soul will have no rainbows if your heart sheds no tears. That's deep, people. For a 16-year-old kid, right? But you know what mine was? I couldn't believe it. I, I go to this, and you know what it says? It says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before. I press on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. As much of an idiot as I was, <laughs> God was seemingly at work here, making me realize that all the accomplishments, all the failures don't define me. And I forget what's behind and I press on to what's before. Not that I've attained all this. You know, you, you young people, you need to think this way. We, we get so defined by failures in our life or accomplishments in our life. Paul says all that compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's all rubbish comparatively. I know it dominates your life right now, young people. But comparatively speaking, compared with knowing Christ, rubbish. It doesn't define you. It's not who you are before God. Who you are in Christ is who you are before God. And God's at work bringing about these amazing Christ-like realities, these fruit of the Spirit realities in our lives. And so he's doing this. And I love that he's at work within us. How? To will and to work for his good pleasure. We live lives pleasing to him, and it starts with him willing this. You see, in my sinfulness... I don't want the right things. My wanter is broken. I don't will the right things. I will all these self-absorbed, not God-honoring things. And the only way that'll change is if God fixes my wanter. 
It gives me a will to serve him, and I've come to realize that anything Godward in me is God-initiated. Anything God-honoring me in me is God-enabled. Anything glorifying to him, pleasing to him of lasting value is all his. That's why even though we get jewels in our crown one day, what do we do with those crowns? We take them off our heads and we throw them at the feet of Jesus and we say it's all grace. It's all gift. And yes, we hear well done and it's really us who did it, but it's really him who did it ultimately. I'm in this phase of teaching my children to drive right now. It's, it's hard. It's hard. And my kids, I think, are generally pretty good drivers, but we really, when we, lived, we were living at Hume Lake, we took advantage of this on private property, lots of roads. But wow, I was just thinking, how, I don't care how much it costs, I'm getting one of those driver's ed instructors, brakes on the passenger side, and spare uh, steering wheel, because this is insane, because it's not working. And say, hey, whoa, 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 brake, 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 brake. That's not working. Right? I, have, I feel so out of control, and I long for the days when my kids were little, and I'd let them drive by sitting them on my lap. And they were driving. They were, their, they were as engaged as you could possibly be. And they're driving. And they're, dri- they're driving. And I'm driving. They're driving. Absolutely they're driving. But I'm driving. Don't think about that illustration too long but I think that's a little something like what we're talking about. We really are driving. We really are called to do it. And it's not meaningless. It's not a farce. But God is guiding. God is initiating. God is working all things out in this way. He's the one at work. He's the one we rest in. And we work, but we rest at the same time. God wills and he works for his good pleasure. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8.16. Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus, put into the heart of Titus, yeah, the same earnest care I have for you, Paul says. Titus cares for you the way I do, and God put that care in his heart for you. That's why I'm sending him, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. God willed in Titus and worked in Titus, for his pleasure. Hebrews 13.21, this great blessing, praying that God may equip you with every good thing, that that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. And so what does this work look like? It looks like humility. It looks like service, just like you see around here all Sunday and all week and out in neighborhoods and homes of people bringing meals and helping those who are struggling and sick. It was just Joni Tallies has got this ministry almost nobody knows about. Just seeing Joni sitting out there. Because she has this amazing compassion for people who need help in very practical ways. 
And so she'll clean and she'll bring a meal and she'll, she'll help with physical things and washing things. And, and, and there's this servant-hearted, joyful, behind-the-scenes kind of ministry that's going on. That's what it looks like. It looks like humility. Specifically in this passage, this humility looks like do everything without grumbling or disputing. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. That, that's an amazing call. As I've pondered my grumbling heart, and you need to know these words of both grumbling and disputing and of the generation where it's crooked and twisted, those are right out of the, the Exodus narrative where the Israelites are so ungrateful. And so rebellious, God brings ten plagues, parts the Red Sea, saves the children of Israel from the angel of death, slays the Egyptian army, brings them into the wilderness, and they want to go back to Egypt. They're grumbling and planning. God's meeting with, uh, with Moses on Mount Sinai, giving the covenant. And they're saying, this is taking forever. Aaron, make us a calf. <gasps> Grumbling and complaining, God calls them a twisted and, and crooked generation themselves. So rather than standing out from the twistedness and the crookedness, they are part of it. They represent it. And we are called to not be that, not to grumble and complain. And man, you don't learn this from our culture. You don't learn humble, grateful living from our culture. We are bombarded with messages constantly that we're getting ripped off. And we deserve way more than we're getting. Every day I get something in the mail. Every day, somebody trying to sell me that idea. Usually from credit card companies. You're not getting the things you deserve. There's a boat and a hog, a car. And I say, thank God I'm not getting what I deserve. And I rip it up and I throw it out because I deserve hell. That's what I deserve. And, and I want us to realize that we are constantly taught to complain and to grumble and to find things that are wrong, to be bored. We're forgiven children of God. Gratitude should be a hallmark of our lives. Anybody who knows a Christian could say, should say, wow, so grateful. Grateful. So, gratitude is the mark of a Christian as much as anything. Not grumbling. And I've been so convicted by this this week. I, I wonder if we need to go after ungrateful grumbling and complaining even more than adultery or pornography. Not that those aren't terrible sins, but, but I think underneath just about every sin is this sense of, yeah, I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm going to take matters in my own hands. I'm going to, I'm going to do what I need to do to get what's coming to me. And, and maybe we need to start with this heart of ingratitude more than anything else. That's the first lie we were told. You better go, go take care of yourself. God's not going to do it for you. So we live in fear. We, we live in rebellion that comes from that. And we've got to rest in him that we are his children. And we're able to be content in him. Look at chapter 4. Look what he says. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's not so, that doesn't mean you can bench 400 pounds. That means you can suffer with gratitude and joy no matter what. Because you follow the man of sorrows familiar with suffering and acquainted with grief, who rejoiced and was grateful all the way to the cross and on the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It doesn't mean it's painless. It doesn't mean it's not fine to seek better circumstances in your life. That doesn't necessarily mean you're ungrateful. But no matter the circumstances, have you learned the secret of being content no matter what? Remember, the church at Philippi started with Paul being beaten and thrown in the prison with his friend. And in prison, they start singing worshipful praise to God out of hearts of gratitude. And that earthquake happens, the Philippian jailer trusts Jesus, and the church is planted. And here he is calling them to persevere with humble gratitude, no grumbling, no complaining. And I am so convicted by an irritability in my life. When things don't go the way I want them to, whether it's in traffic or in my own home, I think I have a right for things to go exactly how I want them to. And when I'm disputing in that way in my heart, I'm disputing with God. That's who I've got a bone to pick. It's God. That's who I've got a problem with. Ultimately, oh, I'm pointing at the guy in front of me who didn't signal. But it's God who I need to deal with with a heart of ingratitude and a lack of joy that comes from that. My impatience, my irritability, I need to go to war with it the way I go to war with other sins in my life. I'm convinced of that. We are called to having joy in the face, faith. Look at Philippians 1.25. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. His suffering, his perseverance for them is something that he hopes brings them joy. And so we're called to be, as it says in Ephesians 4, kind-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving to one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And we, what's the result of this? Blamelessness and innocence. I don't think perfectly, but as a description of our life that we're heading toward that ultimate day when we're blameless in forgiveness and we are, we are progressing down the road of living as God calls us to. And what's the result? It's amazing. Paul says, I want you to be like lights in a dark world, like stars shining in a dark sky. Stars for these people in this context were not mostly just pretty things. They're a way you navigated on a journey or on a ship in the middle of the ocean. Stars got you home. He's saying, I want in the darkness and the crookedness and the twistedness, I want you to be so different that you shine as stars. And how do you do it? Don't grumble and complain. I thought it'd be a little more dramatic than that. No. No. Recognize the ingratitude in your heart and repent of it, Eric. Move to a heart of gratitude and joy. And yes, there's plenty to grieve over. There's plenty to be sad and frustrated by, filled with those things in this world. But in the midst of it, have we learned the secret of being content 
no matter what. How do we do that? How are we the lights of the world representing the light of the world as Jesus said we would? How do we do it? We hold fast to the word of life. It's not just a spiritual, mystical thing. It's grounded in the content of God's word and the gospel at the core of God's word that gives us the word of life we hold to. Hold fast to the word of life. So then the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is saying, your faithfulness, Philippians. God is saying, your faithfulness, Grace Church in La Mirada, will give a validity, a substance, a worthiness to the ministry here that traces all the way back to Paul as he writes to the Philippians and is still at work today. He's saying, I want to know that I ran in a way that mattered, that lasted. So he says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, I think it, clearly he's saying, even if I die for this goal, it'll all be worth it if your faith shows up like Jesus, grounded in Jesus. I love that. He says, my, I'm being, I'm, he's, Paul died for his faith. Do you know that? But you know what else he died for? Their faith. He died for our faith. Do you see that? I'm willing to die, he's saying, on the sacrificial offering of your faith. There, there's a Christian interdependence that we've got to recognize. It's not about not needing anybody or not caring what anybody thinks. No, his joy is all wrapped up in their joy, and he wants their joy to be wrapped up in his. Look what he says. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He dies for their faith, and faith, it's, it's like this, guys. Look, it's like this. This leg here is faith in God's promises of, of glory and exaltation. This leg here is, is uh, trusting in God's power. So this is promises, this is power, and this is living out our daily lives, resting on the foundation of God's promises and his power to accomplish this, but then working that out on a daily basis. And this looks like joy. It looks like gratitude. It looks like putting others first in simple ways that often no one notices. The angels came and they said, we bring you good news of great joy for all peoples. The Messiah has come. We sing at Christmas, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And we show the world what this looks like as we simply decide to put others first because God has done everything we need for him to do on our behalf. So we can be people of faith in God's promises, trusting in God's power to work out our faith with fear and trembling because it's God who's at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Lord, help us. We need it. We are a people who are weak and frail and struggle so often to live as faithful disciples. Lord, would you help us so believe in who Jesus is and what he's done and that you're for us and you will bring these things to completion that we won't waver, that we won't grumble and complain, that we'll put others first, that we'll love well because you loved us first. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.